Christ's victory over the devil and the meaning of our lives. What a text we have here. Hebrews 2, 14, 15, and 16. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that's Christ, likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's an interesting phrase. And then this verse, I read it and I thought, well, what, what does this have to do with anything? Verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Let's pray. Help us, Lord Jesus, as we open up your word. Death is that condition that we all come to. And there's a bondage associated with it. And through the coming of Jesus, we've been liberated from that. Give us understanding as to the full impact of that on our day-to-day living. Let your word cut through the fog of our lazy thinking. Let your word penetrate to that part of our lives where we register what is most important to us. It's better than gold. That's the way it is in your assessment, and help it to be such in ours as well. If that's your prayer, stick the amen on the end. The quotation we studied last week, it's online, from verse 13... The prophet Isaiah, behold, I and the children God has given me. And I talked about the meaning of that strange phrase right in the middle of chapter 2 of Hebrews. But that phrase, the quote, behold, I and the children God has given me, it kind of forms a bridge into verse 14. That, That reference to Isaiah's children, his two sons, is immediately picked up by our writer, in his description of us, mankind, as the children. Therefore, verse 14, the children share in flesh and blood. So so the writer of Hebrews, he's going to link up the, the weakness of the human condition. That's the meaning of the fact that we share uh, flesh and blood. That's the frailty we all have. And our writer is going to link that up with the fact that Jesus, 14, partook of the same things. And the same things are the flesh and blood that we humans are all born into. Okay, that's, that's the setting. So he's talking about Isaiah's children in the previous verse. And that makes him think about us as children. And he says, we all share in flesh and blood. And then he's going to say, Jesus came and he partook of the same things. And the same things are the flesh and blood that you and I share. But even here, it's easy to miss. Even here, our writer is extremely careful to make a very important distinction. 
See, we frail human beings, we all, the text says, share in flesh and blood. That's in verse 14. We all share in flesh and blood because that's our natural condition. That's what we are. We're flesh and blood. The Son now, in distinction, it says, verse 14, put your finger right under the word, partook of the same things. You see the difference? Take special note of that verb, partook. So here's the mystery. The pre-existent God the Son partaking, taking on humanity, flesh and blood humanity at a specific time. You and I don't partake of flesh and blood. Flesh and blood are what we are. Not so with our Messiah. God the Son partook of, took on, became, assumed flesh and blood when he entered this world, as verse 1-6 says, as the firstborn. So he was born into this world. That's the taking on of flesh and blood. So that he could become the firstborn, speaking of his physical birth, He could be the firstborn of many others into redemption and eventually a new creation. From this point, the passage unpacks four accomplishments. Four accomplishments of the flesh and blood incarnation of the Christ. You can see them listed pretty clearly. First, he destroyed the one who had the power of death. That's in verse 14. Second, he delivered those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong bondage. That's in 15. Third, he became a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. That's in verse 17. And fourth, he became effectively able to help those who are being tempted. That's in verse 18. So we're going to look at the richness of the first two this morning. And then next Sunday morning, Lord willing, we will look at the second two. So point number one. God the Son took on flesh and blood to destroy the power of the devil... You can see it in that 14th verse. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise, there's that word, partook of the same things. And this is that, right? Flesh and blood. That through death, and here it is, he might destroy the one who has the power of death That is, the devil. It it seems straightforward enough, but there are several several sharp edges to that verse that, that make it kind of hard to digest. One of the difficulties comes from our Bible reading and our study of God's word. The other difficulty comes from what we observe of life all around us. And... Both of these things together make it kind of hard to see what our writer means when he says the death of God the Son destroys the one who has the power of death, the devil. So first, 
just from our Bible reading, we know it wasn't the devil who decreed death upon mankind. Everybody knows that. Read Genesis 3. It was God. God is the one who said, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Not Satan. So, so here's our text saying, the one who has the power of death, and yet when you read Genesis, death, death comes from a decree of our creator, not from the devil. And secondly, even apart from our Bible reading... Death looks anything but powerless in our world. Am I right? Death has chalked up all wins, no ties, no losses. And so our text, it, it kind of seems, I mean, it's encouraging, all right, but, but it kind of seems like a stretch somehow. I want to look at those two issues. First, how... How is the power of death ascribed to the devil, because the writer of Hebrews does do that, when it was decreed by God himself? And I think, I think the important distinction here is our writer in Hebrews is not talking about the origin of death. He's talking about the power of death. So... The devil isn't the one who decreed the punishment of death, but somehow he is the one who is said to hold the power of death. What's that mean? And here's how it works. The devil is an interloper. Um, he's an intruder. Who, knowing full well the impossibility of a holy God ignoring sin... He knows that, so he seduces mankind into its own destruction. He is the original and persistent feeder of death by tempting, by inciting rebellion against what he knows is the uncompromising justice of a holy creator. He knows how to work the system. This is the devil's horrific power. And I want to I pause and, and make something as, as clear as I can and apply it as best I know how. The devil's sway over mankind has never varied or changed one bit. In this sense, every temptation is exactly the same. He has no variety whatsoever. His sway over mankind hasn't changed since those inaugural four words of destruction. Genesis 3.1. Four words that have ruined and continue to ruin mankind. Did God actually say. Say that with me. Did God actually say? 
absolutely nothing has changed in his universally successful approach. He spreads exactly the same virus to this day. He sows exactly the same question with unending success. It's the only issue there is. How much sway should divine decree hold? That's what he questions. How much sway should divine decree hold? Is is something really forbidden just by divine say-so? Isn't it kind of cultural? Isn't it kind of bound to one religion or another? Doesn't it change from generation to generation as we gain more scientific knowledge and understanding? Like, is something really off limits just by divine say-so plus nothing else? What if that decree, what if that what God has said, what if it makes no sense to our culture anymore? What if it makes no sense to the church anymore? What if our culture can explain it away? What if it makes God and Christians look intolerant? Does it still count? What if people stop believing it? Does does God have the right, the nerve, to just arbitrarily put something off limits and say, you can't do this? Can he do that? Genesis 3.1. Did God... Did God actually say, come on? Be very careful how you answer all those questions that I just asked. Because if if you even tilt in the direction of saying no to any of those questions, then you're lining up with the serpent rather than the Messiah. Everybody understand that? If you even lean in the direction of no, it can't mean that. Then you're lining up with the serpent rather than the Messiah. And there you have it. This did God actually say argument has constantly and consistently yielded satanic fruit The devil has the power of death to this day with arguments like that. He pulls people into death. So now we're just on the edge of answering some of our questions. How did did the death of Jesus destroy the one who has the power of death? Because that, too, seems hard to understand. What what makes our Lord's victory look strange indeed is, well, he dies. He, he, He meets the same end. How's that a win? 
I mean, Christians might want to say it's a win. But, it, you know, it's, it's kind of like saying, sure, in that football game, Team A had more points at the end of the game, but, but Team B had more yards passing. Well, it doesn't matter. If you lose, you lose. And Jesus dies. So on the surface of it, he succumbed to the very same end. He died just as surely as your great-grandparents and everyone else in the cold march of history before him. What kind of victory is that? And we need to think this through. The church needs to think this through and understand. Because this is huge, what we're talking about now. There's no Christianity without this. And there's no good understanding of Christianity without understanding this. Here's the vital difference between the death of Jesus and the death of everyone else in human history. Death, your death, mine, it's, it's penal, it's punishing. We only view it as natural because everybody dies, but there's nothing natural about death, even though everyone dies. Death, death is a punishment, never forget that. But there's an important distinction with the death of our Lord. And here it is. Everyone but our Lord experiences death, the, the result of the fall. Everyone experiences death as a result of rebelling against the will of God. Jesus experienced death, just as real as ours. But he experiences death as a result of perfectly fulfilling the will of God. See, we die because of our sin. Let me make it simple. We die because of our sin. The sinless Jesus died because of his obedience. Everybody get it? We die because of our sin. The sinless Jesus died because of his obedience. There's no connection between personal guilt and death in the person of God the Son. There's another reason for his death. Now our text has kind of a veiled way of expressing the idea. You have to look carefully to see it. But there is a clue and it's in that strange 16th verse. You still with me? You wonder what this is about. For surely it was not angels that he helps, but the offspring of Abraham. So somehow, at least this, we know, we're met, I think, in that verse to see some kind of a distinction between angels and the offspring of Abraham. We're all agreed there, right? Even if we can't explain the whole verse, that's obvious. There's something there that he's contrasting. I think it's this. Not all angels rebelled against God. Their fall was not systemic. Not universal. But all the offspring of Abraham fell from the original divine image. And here's what we know about Abraham. Abraham is mentioned because this letter, don't forget, is being written to Jewish Christians. 
who are being tempted away from faith in Jesus Christ. Well, if you're writing to Jewish Christians, you've got to talk about Abraham. Abraham is covenant man A. He is, he is perhaps the dominant biblical example, especially for a Jewish audience, of a covenant partner with God. There were others, though. Adam. Noah. Abraham. Moses, up on the mountain. David. God, God makes and renews and speaks covenant to all of those people. And here's what they all have in common. Every one of those names I just listed... They are all covenant breakers. Every one of them. They had great strengths. But they all left this earthly scene. They died as failed covenant keepers with God. So, so the whole Old Testament is a record of, even though they're sincere, did their best, but it's a record of covenant breakers, including Israel herself. Covenant breakers who don't live up to the expectations of God. So, they die. And, and, and how, shall, how shall we escape the curse of death? How shall the devil's stronghold be broken? Well, here's what we need. It's not complicated. We need a covenant keeper. We need a fully human covenant keeper. Isn't that what we need? All these people break covenant. They all represent the larger people and they all break covenant. Every one of them, God bless them, they tried and they all died as covenant breakers. We need a fully human because, because he has to help us from our side a fully human covenant keeper. We don't just need another religion. We don't just need more regulations. We don't just need more teachings. We don't keep the ones we have. So moral instruction is not going to solve this problem. We need more than pretend righteousness. We need more than stained glass windows. We need more than incense. We need an actual, legal, justifiable righteousness from a fully human person before a holy God. We need actual righteousness from our side on our behalf before God. That's what we need. And Abraham didn't do it. Enter Jesus. Oh, I hope I can make you see this. Enter the incarnate, fully human as human as Don Horbin in every way, minus sin. Jesus, born in human flesh in Bethlehem, who lived a historically verifiable, sinless, covenant-keeping life. Every communion Sunday, in a little while, we're going to all gather around the table, and Jesus is going to talk about the new covenant in my blood. Do you know what he means? I died keeping the covenant perfectly. Praise God. 
what will we do without that righteousness? Are you going to keep it perfectly? Is there some priest somewhere? Some bishop somewhere? Is there another religious leader? Is there another book? Is there another code of conduct that's going to do this for us? Do you see the uniqueness of Christ, our human covenant keeper before God? He died keeping the covenant, not breaking it. This is the seismic event we participate in in about 15 minutes. God help us if it's ever just, boy, isn't it great to be forgiven? Thank you, Jesus. And off we go. This is huge. This changed everything. This is what happens when a sinless yet fully human covenant keeper dies in our place. Here's a verse to take home from church. Jesus speaking about his death. Now is the judgment of this world. Now, here's the writer of Hebrews talking about the same thing. The ruler of this world. Cast out. Why? Because he has nothing on this covenant-keeping sacrifice. Notice there are two things stated in that John 12, 31. First, there's the judgment on the world because the world must finally decide its response to the Redeemer. Somebody answer the phone. The world has to decide. Everything will be measured, judged. That's what that means. Everything will be measured by the response to Christ, the only covenant keeper. And second, the ruler of this world is finally cast out. He still exists, but he has nothing to make his case stick for those who are in Christ Jesus. The faithful are safe in the perfect righteousness of Christ from all the condemnation and accusation of the devil. It takes, it takes verse after verse of strained sentences. Sentences struggling under the weight of trying to describe something too wonderful to be captured by mere words about our covenant-keeping Redeemer. i got to hurry. But I want to read this passage. If you've got a Bible in any form, you need to see this passage of Scripture. Romans 5, 15-19. This is Paul applying the idea that Jesus died keeping the covenant on our behalf. So he supplies the righteousness. Romans 5, 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. So he's going to compare Adam and Christ. That's what he's going to do here. For if many died through one man's trespass... Much more have the grace of God and the free gift of the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. The free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. 
For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. And he's going to explain it more. For if, because of one man's trespass... Now we're getting close to what Hebrews is talking about. For if, because of one man's trespass... Who's that? Adam? Yeah. Death reigned through that one man. Right? That's the thing he's talking about. The power of death. It reigned. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness... Now, there is no free gift of righteousness if Christ died a covenant breaker. There's no righteousness there. If he died a covenant breaker, then he died for his sins just like you die for yours. But if he died a covenant keeper, obeying the will of God, there's a righteousness that's really there that we participate in. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. He's going to say the same thing again now. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for how many men? All of us. Mankind. So, one act of righteousness. That's Jesus dying a covenant keeper. One act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Doesn't mean they're all saved. Leads to. Those are the important words. 19. For as by one man's disobedience, the many, it's all of us, were made sinners by one man's obedience. That's the covenant keeper. No sin. By one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. That's a good text, church. That's a good text. All right, we've got to move on. I said there were four points. We looked at one. I said we were going to look at two, so let's look at the second one. Point number two. God the Son took on human flesh to deliver those in bondage to the fear of death. You can see that one in... I did something to this sheet. Here. Here. 2.15. This is the second thing. And to deliver all those who through fear of death, I want to talk about that, were subject to lifelong slavery. I don't think this verse means that Christian people no longer have any apprehensions about dying. Maybe you take it that way and that's fine. I think Christians that go to bed and just tell you how wonderful the thought of dying is, I think they're trying to show more faith than they actually have. I don't think any normal, healthy person just thinks, oh, gee, I sure hope I can die right now. I think there's something deeper in those words. The bondage of the fear of death. I think... I think the key to understanding them is tied up with what our writer means when he says about death, it subjected us to lifelong slavery. What what kind of slavery is that? First, 
I think there are two kinds of slavery. One we probably think about more than the other. So the more common understanding, I think, is this fear of accountability, judgment. It's not so much even just dying. It's, it's uh, what, what, what's over there, right? What, what's, just, what's just over death? What's just on the other side? And it's placed by our creator in every one of us to at least consider eternity. What if the atheist is wrong? What if the agnostic didn't calculate properly? What if I wasn't a good enough person? And and I think we are created incapable of never considering such questions. They, they haunt a little bit. So that's the first meaning, I think, of this bondage of the fear of death. But there's another one. The haunting threat of death means all the other pursuits that I use to find meaning, security, fulfillment, and joy in life. Every one of them is going to end in vanity and emptiness. Every accomplishment will amount to nothing. Every relationship will end in cold, hard death. Every possession rots away. The Bible's pretty blunt in the way it talks about those whose names will be remembered no more. Here's bondage. Here's futility. It's like like planning the greatest road trip on earth in a brand new Porsche only to discover you have one tank of gas and it can never be refilled. It just ends. So the penalty of human sin, it stands against even our brief happiest moments and distractions. So this this is precisely the slavery from which Christ has liberated us. I wish there was more time to unpack the sure testimony of the scriptures about the deliverance we have received in, in Christ. I can't. I'm going to cheat and go over the two texts that I have written down there just so you guys up there know what I'm talking about. We have been freed. We have been freed to risk everything for Christ. Being delivered from the bondage, the mad scramble that the fear of death produces in humanity. We have been freed to pour our lives into his kingdom. The energies of our lives can now be re-aimed at their only truly fulfilling object. That's what it means to be delivered from bondage of the fear of death because we can pour our lives into things that death can't take away. 
There's an eternal, brand new creation coming, church. We aren't just dying and going to heaven as spirits. Jesus is coming back. He will raise the dead. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, a very physical reality, a brand new creation. The story of the Bible is the movement from creation originally, decreation through sin, a redemption through Christ, and a renewed creation wherein dwells righteousness. And all of our works done for Christ stand eternally. Meaning is found in Christ that can't be emptied, it can't be undone by death. The enemy will forever be crushed under our Lord's reigning feet. Romans 8, 38, 39, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But it's not just because he really, really likes us. It's because there was actual righteousness that he took to the cross. And we are in Christ. And death has no claim on a covenant keeper. Only covenant breakers. This blood, it's the new covenant. It's the new covenant in my blood, he says. 